My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. You know, it's, it's been said that the two greatest days in a person's life are these. It's the day they were born and the day that they discover why. The day they were born and the day that they discover their purpose in life. Those are the two greatest days in a person's life. Uh, the, for the Christian, the Christian has three great days in their life. The day they were born the day they were born again, and the day that they discover why. The purpose for their Christian existence. Those are the three great days in the life of a Christian. You know, human nature is unrelentingly bent toward self-centeredness. It's, it's, um, it's like a car that's misaligned. You know, you, you can keep it between the lines as long as you have your hand on the steering wheel, but the moment you take your hands off, it veers to the left or it veers to the right. right. You either run off the road or you veer into another lane of traffic. Or even worse, you veer into a lane of oncoming traffic. And that never turns out well for anyone, you see. And, and human nature's self-centeredness, uh, you know, it, it can't be eradicated through rehabilitation or reform or, you know, determining to do something better or, you know, adding a few good routines to your life. It, it can't be eradicated at all. In fact, that's why God has to give us a new nature, right? We call it being born again. Jesus said in John 3, it's, it's being born from above. Um, that new nature is, is where we get these godly desires, this love and, and peace and, and, and various things like that. That's where this new these new desires come from. The Bible also calls it God's seed residing in us. Isn't that great? God's seed, his very own nature residing within us. And you know that nature, it, it, um, it, it comes along with a brand new purpose in life as well. See, if you were born into a royal family, I don't know if you guys got up the other morning to watch the royal wedding. I didn't really care about it, but... You know, if you're born into a royal family and you were first or second or third in line to the throne, you kind of know what your purpose is in life, right? Same thing with God's family. When we're born into God's family, we are born into a brand new purpose in life. And that purpose is like a pair of hands on the steering wheel of life. It keeps us between the lines, uh, preventing us from veering off into the lane of self-centeredness and making a mess of our lives. 
You know, it, it's it's kind of like a north star that's guiding us as we travel the, you know, the the valleys and 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 the peaks and the mountains and the twists and turns of life. It also acts as an anchor to our life to keep us from drifting. And when the storms of life come, having a purpose in life, if it's a noble purpose, will actually carry us through the storm and keep us from being overwhelmed. You know, in in Greek mythology. There is a, a man by the name of Odysseus, and uh, his story comes to us through two poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And in the Odyssey, there's this scene where Odysseus and, and his men, his crew, are passing by an island that is home to two sirens, whose music, whose singing, uh, lures sailors to shipwreck and to their death on the rocks surrounding the islands. Odysseus is curious as to what song they would be singing, but he knows that it will lead to his death and the death of his crew if he doesn't take preventative measures. So he asks his crew to securely tie him to the mast of the ship. And then he put them under strict orders not to release him as they pass under the, uh, the siren singing. And then he also has his crew fill their ears with, with beeswax so that they don't hear the singing and guide the ship shipwrecked into the rocks uh, along the, the seashore. And so as they pass by the island, sure enough, Odysseus hears the singing of the, of the sirens and he begs them to let him go. He pleads with his, his crew to let him go, but they leave him securely in place because they can't hear the singing and they can't hear him. And so he stays there until they are out of earshot of the island. You see, having a purpose in life if it's a noble purpose, will keep us from making a shipwreck of our lives. You know, it acts as beeswax in our ears. It keeps us restrained in the midst of all the voices in the world that will make a mess of our lives. I, I, was, um, I was reading uh, sometime this week about a study where uh, they interviewed several people or many people who work for purpose-driven companies. And what they discovered is that uh, employees of purpose-driven companies are more happier and more satisfied and more likely to stay long-term with the companies that they work for. In fact, in another study, they concluded that people who have a purpose in life in general are happier people and more satisfied with life. I was also hearing uh, recently there was a leadership expert. He used to be a pastor, and, and now he's been involved in leadership. And he was talking on the subject of success. And he says he's, he is often asked, um, you know, what is necessary for a successful life? Or, or he's asked to define the word success. And he said it's really difficult to define it because it's so subjective. Success means different things to different people. But he said in his life, he has discovered there are three dimensions to a successful life. First of all, know your why, know why you're here, the purpose for your life. It is absolutely impossible as a Christian to have a successful Christian life if you don't understand why you're here. He said the second dimension is to be growing on a daily basis, uh, growing and developing and being the kind of person, being all that you can be to carry out your purpose in life. The third dimension, he said, was this. He said, you can know your purpose, you can be growing on a daily basis, but being successful in the Christian life is absolutely impossible if you are not sowing seeds to benefit other people. 
He said, if you're not adding value to other people, it's entirely impossible to be successful. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to add value to the life of other people? It means that our presence is is a benefit to other people. We're an asset to other people instead of a liability. You see, it, it means that when 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 people come into our presence and leave, they walk away enriched uh, instead of impoverished. We bring something to other people's life. We we make other people's lives better rather than leaving them for worse. Knowing your purpose, growing, but most importantly, sowing seeds that benefit other people. If you have your Bible with you, I would like for you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're, um, if you're a guest with us or if you don't have a Bible with you, you will find it, um, I think it's on page 810 in the chair Bibles. John chapter 2. And in today's story, what we're going to see, what's happening in today's story, is something that happens twice in the life of Christ or in the ministry of Christ. The first time it happens at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and then it happens a second time near the end of his earthly ministry. The first time that it happens, he upsets a lot of people. And the second time it happens, it's actually a factor that led to his crucifixion. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke 22 that when it happened the second time, the chief priests and the scribes started looking for a way in which they could kill him. I think some translations say assassinate him. And so what I'm talking about is what Bible translations, what Bible scholars call the cleansing of the temple. And in John, what we have in John chapter two, we have the first cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Mark and Luke record the uh, second cleansing of the temple. So we're going to take a look at that story, verses 13 through 17. And uh, if, if you're a guest with us, I'm, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Here's what John says. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. He goes on to say in verse 15, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle and he scattered the money changers coins over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he said to them, get these things out of here and stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. So our story here today, our story takes us back in time to the Jewish temple and to an area within the Jewish temple that's called the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you remember in the Bible, the Bible groups people, uh, generally speaking, in the two groups. There are Jews and then there are Gentiles. And so the Gentiles are non-Israelites. So if you're not Jewish, you would be you would be a Gentile. Sometimes the word is translated as the nations. And so that's what we're, we see here in our story today. Now, I want you to take a look at this picture here. This is a model of what biblical archaeologists believe that the temple looked like in the days of Christ. This is called the first temple. And you can visit this model um, in, in Jerusalem. But the actual temple that this model is based on that you see here in the picture no longer exists. 
it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD as part of really as part of God's judgment against his people. But because of the Jewish revolt that had been taking place for so long, the Romans came in and they actually actually just wiped this this temple off the face of the earth. And uh, Jesus, 37 years before it actually happened, Jesus predicted that it would happen. He prophesied that it would happen. One afternoon as they were leaving the temple, I think it was Peter who made a comment about how beautiful the building is. And uh, Jesus, in so many words, he said, mark my words, not one stone will be left upon another. And that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Romans went in and and destroyed uh, destroyed the temple. And of course, today, this this space here is occupied by the Dome of the Rock, which uh, is an Islamic shrine that was built in the seventh in the seventh century. Now, this temple here in the picture is called the second temple. You remember the first temple. Uh, is Solomon the first temple to occupy this space was Solomon's temple and it was constructed about 900 over 900 years before the birth of Christ and Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and that too was part of God's judgment uh, against his people and the Babylonians deported uh, the Israelites back to Babylon well then 70 years later God returned his people back to the promised land and when they arrived they rebuilt another temple and that's called the second temple but what you're looking at here is actually a remodeled version of the second temple this is called herod's temple uh it was it was remodeled by herod the great who was also known for a lot of building projects all throughout israel so the temple they built didn't look like this this was the remodeled version of it uh in the days of christ and so archaeologists believe this is what jesus was seeing okay now, if you see these two uh, open areas on both sides of the temple, these these spaces here, this is what's called the court of the Gentiles. This is where our story is taking place here. OK, and so Jesus walks in. He, he goes to the uh, to the temple. He's there for the Passover. And when he walks into this open space, what he discovers is a massive open air market. There are people who are selling cattle. They're selling sheep. They're selling doves. Um, there are people there who are exchanging money. There are uh, um, money exchanging tables for people who are coming into Jerusalem uh, there for the Passover to have their money exchanged because only one type of coin uh, was accepted there uh, in the uh, in the temple area. And so Jesus is there and he, he walks in, he sees this large open space and and he discovers it's been turned into a large open air market. Now, many historians tell us. That upwards to 300,000 or perhaps 400,000 people would ascend on Jerusalem during the Passover. So you need a large space to serve that many people. And the court of the Gentiles was the perfect place to do it. I mean, you've got to imagine this place is filled with animals. It's filled with people changing money. And and, uh, what makes it so convenient is its close proximity to the temple. So it's a very convenient service that's being offered there. But that's not how Jesus saw it. Jesus didn't see a convenient ministry going on. When he walked in, he was very angry with what he saw. And what the story tells us, if you remember, the story tells us Jesus made a whip and he drove the people out of the temple area. He drove out the cattle, the doves, the sheep. He, he took the money changers coins. He poured it out on the ground. He turned over the tables. Uh, he, he went to the merchant selling doves and he told them, you know, to get this stuff out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. I mean, he was a one man wrecking crew. Right. The next time somebody asks you, what would Jesus do? Yeah. 
Well, you know, fashioning a whip and whipping people is not out of the question, right? <laughs> so he drives everyone out and, and he clears his place. He says, you know, you're, you're turning my, my father's house into a marketplace. Now, the question is, why is Jesus so angry? Why would he be so angry about a convenient ministry like this? Well, see, according to our story, it has nothing to do with price gouging. Uh, It has nothing to do with cruelty to animals. It it has nothing to do with an anti-capitalistic spirit in Jesus. You see, the reason why Jesus is so mad, uh, for us to understand why he is so angry, we have to remember where the story is taking place. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the court of the nations. You see, this open area is where the nations would gather together to worship Yahweh. See, only the Jews, the Israelites, could go further into the temple complex. But this is the spot that was marked out for the nations. But see, God's people came along and they had filled it with commercial activity. And so the reason why Jesus is so upset is because God's people are hindering the worldwide worship of Yahweh. They are hindering the global worship of God with their commercial activity. See, this is the only place that was marked out and designated for them. So if you're a Gentile, if you're a non-Jewish person and you wanted to worship Yahweh, you came to faith in Yahweh and you wanted to worship him, this was your space. But on that day, there was no space for the nations to worship. There was no place for them to come in and worship. And this is why this is why Jesus is so upset, because they're hindering the worldwide worship of God. And you have to remember that love and anger are not incompatible. You see, the reason why Jesus is so angry is because of his perfect love for the Father and his perfect love for the nations. You see, God, Jesus loved God so much, the, the, the Father so much, that he loved seeing his Father worshipped and honored and loved by other nations. He loved it when the nations would come and they would give honor to his Father. You see, it was love that caused him to make the whip and to drive the people out of of the court. It was love that motivated him to drive out all of the animals. And while the anger of turning over the tables and throwing money, you know, we, we may not necessarily think of that as love. Love is what's driving these actions. You know, it was love that that caused Jesus to say, get these things out of my father's house and stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You see, love for God loves the things that belong to God. And it was Jesus's perfect love for his father that caused him to be passionate about this temple. But Jesus also had a perfect love for the nations as well. He wanted the nations to experience what he experienced in perfect fellowship with the father. He wanted the nations to experience the peace and the love and the forgiveness. Although Jesus didn't have any sin, but he wanted them to experience Everything that he experienced in perfect fellowship with the father. This is why he was so angry at his people. See, this is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just the Israelites, the sin of the world. And so when Jesus that day walks into the court of the Gentiles, he is fuming. He is angry because God's people are coming between Yahweh and the nations. And this is what made him upset. In fact, the purpose that God's people had in the world was this right here. It was to spiritually 
enrich the nations. That was their purpose in life, was to spiritually enrich the nations. See, but that's not what was taking place on that day because the one place in which the nations could gather and worship God was filled with consumer activity. See, God had blessed his people to be a blessing to others. You remember what, what God said to Abraham in Abraham chapter 12, or in Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you so that all the families in the earth would be blessed through you. Now, ultimately, he's talking about Jesus Christ and the blessings that Christ would come. But the point of Abraham's existence and his descendants, the nation of Israel, was to be a blessing to the world. You see, God had chosen them to be his people, not because they were more distinguished than any other nation. It was purely by grace. But God chose them to be his people. And then after being uh, in slavery, they were Egypt. They they were uh, enslaved by the nation of Egypt. God prospered them in slavery. If you remember, their population grew so much in slavery that the Egyptians got nervous because they outnumbered them. And then eventually he sent Moses in uh, to fulfill the promises he had made. He sent Moses in and he led them out of Egypt and he demonstrated his love and his goodness for his people through these incredible plagues that he led. And then he, he took them through the Red Sea and then eventually he brought them to a place called the Promised Land the place where modern-day Israel is located. He gave them this land. He said, I am giving you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. In other words, what he means is, I'm taking you to a place where you are going to flourish and thrive as a people. That's what God does. He's a God of life, not a God of death. And he takes them into the promised land. He gives them all these blessings. They're flourishing as people. He gave them his word, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He made promises to them in the form of covenants. He gave them the sacrificial system, uh, which eventually pointed to Jesus. But the sacrificial system reminded them every day, of course, that they were sinners because they had to offer these sacrifices. But at the same time, it reminded them that God loves them so much and wants to have fellowship with them on a daily basis. He's going to provide the means for that each and every day. Because he's a good God. And he gave all of these blessings, but the greatest gift that he gave his people, the greatest blessing he gave to them was the blessing of his presence. You see, it was God's idea for him to live among his people. And so he commissioned the building of a tabernacle in the Old Testament. That's that's a kind of like a portable worship uh, area. And then eventually with Solomon. He commissioned the building of a temple, and on each occasion, he filled the tabernacle and he filled the temple with his presence because God desired to live with his people. And these blessings that he gave to his people were not just for them. It's not as if God was saying, hey, listen, it's just going to be us four and no more. No, the blessings that he gave his people were to be dispersed among the nations. But see, that's not what happened with God's people. If you remember in the Old Testament, instead of spiritually enriching the nations, God's people started living like the nations. They stopped loving Yahweh with all of their heart, soul, and mind, and they started loving these pagan gods, which aren't really gods at all. If you remember, the Bible talks about high places and what those were in ancient times. These were, these were shrines to pagan gods, and they were all throughout the land of Israel. They were no longer loving God with all their heart. They were loving these pagan gods. And then when you jump over to the New Testament, you have an entirely different problem. 
God's people now are arrogant and they're self-righteous and they despise the nations. Neither attitude spiritually enriches the nations. See, neither attitude uh, um, enriches other people. Neither attitude proves to be an asset to other people. It makes us a liability to others. And that's what's happened to God. They, they were supposed to spiritually enrich the nations, but they were far, far from doing that. You know, as the years have come and gone, the mission for God's people has not changed. You see, we are called to make disciples of the nations. In fact, to make disciples who make disciples. Right? We're called to connect people to a growing relationship with God and then to help them to grow in that relationship with God and with others. That's our mission in life. Discipleship ministry is basically a spiritually enriching ministry. We're bringing life to people where death abounds. You know, people who give away their money in large proportions to organizations that help other people, that enrich the lives of other people, they're called philanthropists. Well, God has called us to be spiritual philanthropists to our world, to take the blessings that we have been given and to disperse those blessings out to other people. Uh, discipleship ministry, as I said, it is a life-giving ministry to, to our community. And, and we, when you think about the community and you think about the world in which we live in, we know that death abounds in the world that we live in. And yet God has called us to this kind of ministry. I want you to take a look at this passage here. It's from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. When I used to read this passage, I used to think that this is some kind of statement about eternal security. You know, know, Jesus says rivers of living water. Not sure what all that means, but maybe Jesus is saying I'm safe and secure. You know, once I'm a child of God, I'm always a child of God. Well, the New Testament teaches that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, look at the image he uses. Rivers of living water will flow from within. When you think about rivers, what happens with rivers? They start somewhere and they move out in a direction. All right. You know, throughout history, uh, rivers have played a critical role in the rise and the development and the stability of civilizations. You know, cities great and small have gotten their start along a riverbank. Uh, my hometown in Alabama started on the banks of the Black Warrior River. And, and that river has been so strategic to its growth and to its stability. And it's the same way with many of the major cities in, in, in the world today. Entire regions have flourished culturally and economically because of rivers. Rivers bring life. And, and a lot of times rivers have the power to shape and to reshape geography. You know, when you think about the communities, I mentioned a moment ago, the, the community in which we live and, and just the world that we live, death abounds in the world in which we live. And I'm not talking about just physical death, but spiritual death. You remember the Bible says in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul said, sin entered the world through one man. And then what followed? Death followed sin. Spiritual death. Sure, it leads to physical death, but we're talking about spiritual death. You see, and the footprint of death is brokenness. Broken people, broken marriages, 
broken lives, broken communities, whatever it is, the footprint of death is brokenness. It's bondage. You see people in addictions. You see people who are hopeless. You see destructive anger. That's death. You see, it's the opposite of life. But God's people have been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus says once we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes a river of living water that flows from us. That tells us something about who we are in the world and what we are to do in the world. You see, we're the kind of people who are to bring life where there's death. We're the kind of people who are to exchange the footprint of death for the footprint of life. You know, the Bible uses that that imagery, life and death. Think of it this way. Life is things like love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness. The opposite of that is death, hatred, anxiety, unhappiness. That is the footprint of death. But the footprint of life is things like the, the fruit of the spirit that's produced in our life. You see, God has called us to go into a community that's broken uh, uh, with the footprint of death. And we are to bring life to that community. And the way that we bring life is not that we give the Holy Spirit to people. That's something only Jesus can do. But what we do is we take the blessings that have been given to us, this new life in Christ, and we unleash it on the brokenness of the world through our good works of love, compassion, mercy, and kindness. That's the kind of stuff that changes people. That's the kind of things that changes communities. And the goal is always not just, you know, good works in the community. The goal is always to bring people to a relationship with Jesus Christ because that's where true healing is found. That's where true transformation is found. It's through the free gift of eternal life. But Jesus tells us here that we have these rivers of living, uh, living water. In other words, this presence of the Holy Spirit is God's healing, refreshing, life-generating, community-reshaping presence that's in us. And we let that go to other people through our good works. I mean, think about those times when you've been hurting or you've been broken and someone came into your life with love, someone came into your life with kindness, uh, someone came in, you know, into your life with goodness, what did it do? Right? It encouraged you. It changed you. It may have changed your situation, may have made your situation even more bearable than it was before. You know, we've seen people's lives change. I was watching a, a video recently about um, it, this animal rescue service. And, and now that I think about it, I should have had that clip. But this uh, lady was given an interview and they had rescued a number of dogs from a home that had been abused. So the only touch that these animals knew was a touch of abuse. And it showed one of the contact the first time this lady, she, she was reaching out to one of these dogs that had been just uh, extremely abused. And it would just scream out in pain because he thought she was there to abuse her. But over the course of three or four months, you should have seen the transformation that was brought in that animal's life through that loving touch. And it's the same way with people in our community, people in the world, people who are sitting, whose people, who, uh, people's lives who are marked by the footprint of death. When we come in as rivers of living water with our good works of love, compassion and mercy, we have the power to change people's lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, that is spiritually enriching people around us. And that is what we're called to do. You know, when you think about it, 
Jesus has some very strong words for churches that are no longer life-generating presence in their community. Uh, you might remember the church of Laodicea. And here is what he said to, to that church in Revelation 3. He said, I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. And I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some strong words. Now, Laodicea was located near two cities, Heropolis and Colossae. Uh, at, uh, Heropolis was known for its hot springs, its mineral hot springs that was used for medicinal purposes. And Colossae was known for its pure, cold drinking water. Laodicea didn't have a, a water source of its own, and so it would pipe in the water from Colossae. But by the time it reached Laodicea, the water was lukewarm. And see, what Jesus is doing here, he's criticizing the church in Laodicea for being neither hot nor cold. In other words, he's saying, listen, you don't even have a healing presence or a refreshing presence in your community. He said, I wish you were one or the other, but you're neither. You're lukewarm. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That image just shows the disgust that Jesus has with Jesus had with the people there in Laodicea. And it reminds us once again, our mission in this world and our purpose in this world of bringing healing and refreshment to those who are living with the footprint of death. There was another image that Jesus also used of, of uh, Christians as well. He said that we were the salt of the earth. He said salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? He says of no value for the soil or for the manure pile and it's to be thrown out. Now, the salt that Jesus is talking about there is not our modern day table salt. He is he is talking about fertilizing salt that was used in the first century. And if the salt was used properly, it would be sprinkled along the ground and it would kill the weeds. But then it would also later on permeate the soil through rainfall and it would release its nutrients in the soil, uh, encouraging growth, causing the crops and the plants to flourish. And then sometimes manure was also used as fertilizer as well. And so the ancients would, would sprinkle salt in the manure pile to enhance its fertilizing properties. Jesus is telling us that you're the salt of the earth. That wherever you are, life should be manifested. It means our life should be the kind of lives that encourage growth, that encourage people to flourish. The kind of people who are, are, are bringing spiritual life to their communities and beyond. The kind of lives that, that, you know, that again, that erase that footprint of death wherever they are. We are to be rivers of living water and the salt of the earth. And seeing that what Jesus had to say here to the church in Laodicea, it reminds us just how serious he takes this mission. You see, that, that's the kind of mission that we want in life. That is a disciple-making mission of bringing life to other people. And I hope that you're doing that today. That's one of the great things about Sunrise's presence in this community and beyond. This is a place that brings life to other people. This is a place that people who are living with a footprint of death know that they can come here and they will experience life. You see... And I hope that we're living that way. I hope that you are living that way too. There's really no other way to live. That's our purpose in life. 
And a lot of times, you know, when we have that restlessness or we feel unfulfilled or maybe there's a lack of joy in our life, sometimes it's related to the fact that we may not be carrying out our purpose. Let me close it this way. Let me illustrate it this way. Fourteen years ago, I put this on my finger. Fourteen years ago, my wife and I, Michelle and I, married And uh, I met my wife in in Newcastle, England. She's an American, but we were both involved in ministry in Newcastle. And we met and we came back to the States and got married. I wanted to go back to Alabama. And she said, no, we're staying here. So, So we stayed here. Now, you know, even though I'm married, I can take this ring off or I can leave it on. And I can go out and try to live a life as a single man, as if I'm not married. I have four kids as well, ages 10 and under. You know, and I can go out and try to live as a single man instead of living as a married man. And what will happen is I will make a mess of my life. I'll lose my ministry. I'll make a mess of my life. I'll hurt my wife. I'll hurt my kids. I'll embarrass them and I'll embarrass other people that know me. I'd be an embarrassment to Sunrise and then anyone else. And the reason why is because I can't live contrary to who I am and live a life of joy. That's not how it works, you see. And that's the same way with our purpose in life. We have been empowered to bring life to our communities, and we can't live any other way. You see, that's where true joy is found, and that's where our life will be most effective as Christians, is being the kind of people that we've been empowered to be. And so I want to encourage you to be a river of life, to be salt of the earth to your community and to other people who are in need. That's really the only way that we we can live. And one of the great things about it is this, is that Jesus and and the Apostle Paul promised there is great rewards for people who live this way. I mean, can you imagine standing before Jesus and hearing, well done, my great and faithful or good and faithful spiritual philanthropist? Well, he won't say that. He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, Paul talks about Christians standing at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat. That's where we receive our rewards for the kind of steward we've been. And I hope that you want to be a faithful steward of your purpose in life. Bringing life to the footprint of death, being rivers of living water and being the salt of the earth to those around you. Father, uh, we just want to thank you again for our time to gather here and um, just to reflect upon your word, to be able to, to sing praises to you because you have changed our life. You have made us new people. In fact, your gospel has made us better people. And, uh, Father, we thank you for changing that. We, we are reminded that at one time we were your enemies. Uh, many of us had no love for I mean, we We had no love for you. We had no love for Jesus. But yet, in your goodness and your kindness, you brought people into our lives to share the gospel. You opened our eyes through that message. We saw Jesus for who he is, and we believed in him. And it's at that moment we stopped being your enemy, and we became a son or daughter of you. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for this new mission you've given us in life and how you've empowered us with the work of the Spirit. And we realize how important it is to be walking in the Spirit and to be producing the the fruit of the Spirit as well. Father, what an incredible life that we can live to bring life to other people and life to our communities. And Lord, um, if there's people here today that aren't living this kind of life, 
Maybe there's something standing in the way, something that is, has clogged up the flow of, uh, of, of the river or, or something that has made the salt saltless. Father, I just pray that today would be the day that they would get rid of it. They would confess it and you would put them on a new path to doing what you have called them to do. Uh, Father, thank you so much for loving us. And we look forward to that day when Jesus Christ returns and gathers us to himself. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.